from the book of Ephesians this morning, and I'd encourage you to turn there. Really continuing on a theme of God building this household of peace. And uh, one of the interesting things about having lived in Orange County almost my whole life and going to this church my entire adult life is uh, to recall when I started out here that um, the Great Park was basically empty lots, and uh, all these houses here were just strawberry farms and, and orange trees. And it was a tremendous thing. It almost happened in the blink of an eye, to be honest with you, that a bajillion houses just cropped up. I mean, it, I'd still, to this day, I'm shocked. Pastor Chris took me over to the Great Park and uh, showed me all of these new uh, townhomes that I didn't didn't realize were even there, like tens of thousands of people just right there where there was just strawberries and orange trees populating it before. And something like that doesn't happen without a lot of planning and a lot of preparing. You don't have something grow together like that without someone putting that together. Now, I'm not trying to get into Irvine politics or anything like that, but um, for sure, those who wanted this to happen had a clear plan and a goal to make it happen such that really it felt like you blinked an eye and all of a sudden there they were homes dwelling places and that's what man can do if they purpose in a unified way all these you know stakeholders and and uh, politicians and Irvine company when they set a goal that's what they could do and that's what they could accomplish again I'm not trying to get into the politics whether that's good or bad or not but um what if God chose to build something, what, what would that be? And how would that look? And that's the, the question that we want to think of and talk about today is God is building something. And we saw glimmers of it in the past, in the Old Testament, but we saw the fruition and the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. Now today we're going to talk about uh, the temple, actually. And I think really to embrace and appreciate what Paul says and verses 17 through 22, but especially verse 20 through 22, we have to have an appreciation for what they would have thought of when they thought of the temple of God. And so we're going to do a quick history lesson, all right? I, I know um, that part of what we do on Sunday mornings is to help you understand the Bible better for yourself, and that means that I like to inform you, and it's the need of the past to inform you of any kind of context that would help you to put yourself in sort of the expectation in the seat of the audience. So we're going to talk a little bit about the temple and the holy temple. It's, it's really interesting to me. There's a lot of things going on right now, actually, about uh, the temple or a temple in Jerusalem. But we're going to talk and go back way to the time of David and Solomon. The temple would become one of the most iconic symbols of the Jewish religion. It was certainly the largest and most grand and historically significant object of the Jewish religion, and it was still standing at the time of Paul. But the one who had built the first temple in Israel was a man by the name of Solomon. You may have heard of him. He was the wisest man to ever walk the planet besides Jesus himself. He was the son of David, the first true righteous king of Israel. Now, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but his hands were too bloody, the Lord said, because he'd done a lot of uh, not so great things, and so God told David, Solomon, your son, is going to build it. Well, Solomon indeed built a glorious temple that was going to be the centerpiece, not only of the, the nation, but of the religion, the Jewish religion. And it's interesting or significant that the Jews were not like other religions of the time. Other religions of the time, you would just find a hill, you could build a little altar, and you can see pictures of that to this day, and you could worship whatever god you wanted or many gods uh, at this altar, and they'd be built on these high places wherever, wherever you went. We still find them to this day. But it was almost as if Yahweh, the God of Israel, was saying, I am not a god of many places and many faces. There is only one god, and the place that I choose to dwell is in Jerusalem, and there's only going to be one way to worship me, and that is through the, the temple sacrifices. That's it. Not many places, not many temples, just one. And it would be this temple that Solomon built. It took seven years to build it. It was gigantic. At its height, it was 20 stories tall, 
which is, uh, uh, if you think about it, without cranes and without any modern technology to build that was quite a feat. It was beautiful. The finest craftsman had a hand in all the decorations. It was made of the best lumber and stone. And uh, maybe most significant, it was completely overlaid with gold inside and outside. David contributed 100,000 talents of gold. Um, we're not exactly sure how much a talent was in terms of a weight. It's possible up to the weight of an average person, which would estimate between 3,500 to 4,000 tons. That would be over $120 billion worth of gold in today's money. That's what David contributed to build this temple and just have everything covered in gold. And of course, again, the function of it was to be the center of Jewish religion, Jewish uh, worship, and sacrifices were to be made in its courtyards. Prayers and offerings were to be made daily. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the, the deepest part of the building where he could only go this one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, and offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And in this Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the mercy seat of God. And that's actually the place where God said he dwells, is there in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat where the, priest, the high priest would offer sacrifice once a year. I want you to hear Solomon's dedication of this temple. And you gotta, again, don't, don't make assumptions about, you know, if you've ever been to Israel um, and, and, and modernize this, you, you have to try at least a little bit to put yourself in a place where the kingdom of Israel had just gone through um, some of these trials with Saul and David, and now Solomon, his son, is building this project, and there they stand before this gigantic 20-story tall building that's almost blinding because it is just gleaming with gold. It, it would have been just almost a shock to your senses to see it, and this is what Solomon said at the dedication. This is 1 Kings 8. And this, I'm, I won't read the whole dedication, but this part, 8, 26 through, 20, uh, through 30. 1 Kings 8, 26 through 30. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Yahweh, my God listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So on it goes that the temple would be this place of confession, of repentance, of righteousness, that everyone was to look to the temple as the reason that they could have hope because maybe I did screw up. Maybe I did treat someone poorly. Maybe someone treated me poorly. But when I think about the fact that God would choose to dwell among us in the temple, I know that there can be forgiveness, that there can be hope and a chance to do better. Look, especially verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner, that is a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, 
and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. In other words, this was also to be a place for the world to come and see that God is a God who cares for his people, that, that is there to serve and minister even to any who would humble themselves before him. Now, this temple that Psalm built, it stood for about 400 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., the Israelites, they had become so wicked. They profaned the temple that God dwelt in <laughs> that uh, so profusely. And after getting so many chances to repent, that God used a very wicked nation, the Babylonians, to come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And it was devastating. But what was worse then the devastation that the Babylonians brought, and they murdered, and they killed, and they pillaged, and all, uh, they, set, they set it on fire. They, they took all, away all the gold and brought it to Babylon. The worst part about it, though, was in Ezekiel. He, he tells us, or gives us this image of the presence of God leaving the temple. That is the most discouraging, disheartening picture, is that God was saying, you have forsaken me so much. I need to turn my back on you that you might learn to repent. And God did promise that though they were exiled into Babylon, men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was discipline, not eternal judgment. God did want to bring them back. He had prophesied it through Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets. And if you remember the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, which was during the reign of the Persian Empire, God used the leaders of Persia, like Cyrus and Artaxerxes, to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the second temple was rebuilt and dedicated in 516 B.C., so about 70 years after the destruction. Now, it didn't have the grandeur of the first temple. They didn't have $120 billion worth of gold um, <laughs> to, to overlay everything um, it wasn't quite as big. It w didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant in it anymore. But it was there, at least. Again, a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. And the people did start worshiping through the sacrifices again. But even at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, you get the picture that almost as soon as the temple was built and dedicated, their hearts were immediately going astray. Um, and it dis doesn't last long, the excitement, enthusiasm of being back in Jerusalem, and we can worship at the temple again. Almost immediately, uh, they, the Israelites lost faith, and the prophets went silent. And so you have a gap between Malachi and Matthew in your Bibles that is not just a page, but hundreds of years where the prophets were silent. And the way the Old Testament ends, it's not on some victorious note, but the sense that something is broken and it's waiting to be fixed. Now, hundreds of, history, hundreds of years of history go by. Israel never regains a status as an independent nation. They were under Persia, and then when the Persians were defeated by the Greeks, they were under the Greeks, and when the Greeks were defeated by the Romans, they were under the Romans. And Throughout those 400 years or so, the temple, it just went through the cycle of being either ignored, built up, or defiled, but never really truly embodying that center of, of Jewish worship that it should be, certainly not the kind of uh, fulfillment of the kind of prayer that Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8. So finally, though, a treacherous, murderous, man by the name of Herod, he gained the favor of the Romans. He was allowed to rule over the province of Judea, which was the name of that region that the Romans had given to it. And Herod was allowed to do or have a lot of power in his little kingdom underneath the Roman Empire, including killing his own relatives, killing children, and, uh, and towards the end of his life, wanting to establish a legacy, <laughs> he invested himself and invested the people's money 
into a number of building projects, and the chief among them was improving the temple. This is what Josephus, who was a historian that lived around the time of Jesus, this is what he said about this. He said, and now Herod, in the 18th year of his reign, and after the acts already mentioned, undertook a very great work, that is, to build of himself the temple of God, and make it larger in compass, and to raise it to a most magnificent altitude, as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions, as it really was to bring it to perfection, and that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial of him. Now, when you read that, <clears throat> it is like the opposite of everything Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8. Like, there's humility with Solomon. This is a place where God will dwell, but could God even dwell in this little house I built for him, but let it be a place where people can find, you know, confession, repentance. Let it be a place where foreigners can come and have their prayers heard. And what did Herod want? He wanted a gigantic monument to his ego, the temple of God. He wanted it to be a temple of Herod, except in name. And that is exactly what he did. And in, in, on the one hand, if you're just looking at it in a very neutral way, he, it was an impressive feat to improve the, the, the temple itself, which is the building, and also the whole compound. He enlarged the courtyards. He included a courtyard of the Gentiles, a courtyard of the women, um, and then a, a courtyard where um, the, the normal courtyard where everyone except for Gentiles and women could go. Um, <coughs> he... Uh, used decorative stones to beautify it. Of course, it didn't have uh, a ton of gold either at this time, so it didn't overlay everything with gold. Um, but he did beautify it, and uh, there's some very impressively large stones that he cut from a local quarry uh, and used to build up and out the temple. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, part of Herod's renovations, like I said, was building this courtyard for Gentiles to enter. But it was the furthest away you know, for where, where the, the action is happening. Um, and they weren't allowed any closer. It's interesting, in 1871, they discovered a stone with this engraving near a courtyard on the Temple Mount. And this is what it said, not in English, but in Greek, um, but translated to English. Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple, the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. So this, we imagine, was dated to the time of Herod. It had to have been to talk about um, a Gentile courtyard. Um, and so even in that, he was contrary to, you know, Solomon's prayer of blessing, that there was a death penalty. Should any Gentile step any further than their little zone that they were allotted to? All in all, it was a monument to Herod's vision of a glorious house of God, the kind of God that would approve of a selfish, greedy, murderous man like him would dwell in, but not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time of Jesus then and his ministry, it was filled with self-righteous Pharisees and scribes, crooked and corrupt priests, and money, lots and lots of money, because what Herod had built was an altar to himself, it was filled with people who would worship the God that Herod worshiped, which is self. And again, when you contrast that with Solomon's prayer, it is not the place that it ought to have been. So on the one hand, you would have been impressed. In fact, what did the disciples say in Mark 13, 1 and 2? They're walking near the temple, and the disciples say, look what beautiful stones on this temple. They're impressed. And they want Jesus to be impressed too. But Jesus' response to the, them is, oh, you see this temple? There's coming a day when not even one stone will be laid upon another. In other words, he prophesied the destruction of that temple. Not only did he prophesy, go on to prophesy the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the world. So he uses it as a linchpin uh, to a conversation about how everything will be destroyed except the people of God. And the reason that right now, right now, 2022 still, right? 
that there's no temple of Herod sitting on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is because in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed that temple just a few years after Paul was beheaded for his faith. So Paul did not see the destruction of this temple. So when he wrote Ephesians, he still had that temple in mind. So when I bring all of this up, it's to say that when Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, not only having peace with each other, through having peace with God, which we've talked about for a few weeks now, he is going to use an analogy that would have been doubly shocking because he's not just claiming that Jews and Gentiles, people that in a way are supposed to have nothing to do with each other, can come together and have peace. He's also saying that these people are going to be built up as the temple of God. And if you were a Jewish person hearing that, you said, what does that mean? We have a temple. It is the, kind of the central you know, object of Jewish worship. Christians still would go there. Paul would still go there. I mean, it would have been a peculiar idea, again, because there's also an idea of like, well, how does that work? You know, what, am I a stone? How does that all fit together? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. All of that to say, Paul knew the teachings of Jesus. When he used this analogy, he wasn't just plucking something out of the air. He knew that Herod's temple was going to be destroyed someday. He knows the theology of Jesus. But he also understood Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 6, when Jesus said, someone greater than the temple is here. Meaning, Paul knew that the basis of worship between God and men was not going to be centered on a certain temple on a certain mountain in a certain city where only a certain man on a certain day of the year could come in with a certain sacrifice for the sins of a certain nation. Instead, Paul knew the words of Jesus as he said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, 21 through 24, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You and I take it for granted that we can worship God without a temple. But for those early believers, that was anything but an assumption. You know, they're just learning this for the first time. We tell you all the time, you know, Pastor Chris and I, you know, we're a body of Christ. We're a family of God. You know, all these things. And uh, you've heard over and over again. But for them, when they first read it, they would have been, what? <laughs> read that part again. Because likely someone was reading this letter to the church in Ephesus and the other churches. And they're actually, everything that Paul would have been saying, their just minds would have been blown because no one's ever said this before. So everything would have been just um, shocking to them. You almost wish it's like uh, watching a good movie the first time and you wish you could reset your brain and watch it again as it, you could the first time. I mean, in a way, I wish I could do that and just, just think like, this is crazy, Paul. What are you saying? Jews and Gentiles together in one household and that we are the temple of God? Yes, we are a new structure built on a better foundation. The Old Testament Israel and the Old Testament temple was built on the law of Moses. And it, it fell apart, literally and spiritually. But the church is built on Christ. And those who have been transformed by him are his holy temple. That's the thesis of this passage. Old Testament Israel, Old Testament temple was built on the law of Moses and it fell physically and spiritually. But the church is built on Christ and those who have been transformed by him are his holy temple. All right, so that's all an introduction, okay? <laughs> now you can, now you have the context to understand the imagery Paul's using and we'll go a little bit faster from here because really in a way that's all just once you know that, you can understand this a lot better. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make more sense, the significance of it. You don't necessarily need uh, me to explain all of the things here, but just to point out some of the, the consistencies and some of the, the 
nuggets of truth. Um, we'll, we'll go through it verse by verse. Start in verse 20. Or actually, we're going to start at the end of verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 20 connects to verse 19, of course, that we are the household of God, a family. And Paul does something he does often, which is kind of to either mix analogies or just switch to another analogy without giving you really a heads up. He does it a lot. Actually, I feel like a lot of the Bible writers do. But he's basically transitioning from the illustration of a family to the illustration of a building. But when you think about it, that's not an unusual connection to make. Because a lot of us, at least I do this, when I think of family and I think of growing up, I think of my room and I think of the house that I grew up in. Um, it's a very natural context. It's not that the house has anything to do with connecting you, you know, biologically to your, your, your parents and your siblings, but, you know, the house, the structure of it is sort of symbolic of your home life, good or bad. So obviously it's not like such a, you know, far, you know, reaching illustration to think of a building after you talk about a family. Like I, I think about actually, you know, sometimes I'll just drive by my old house in, in Orange and just think about it. It's like there's nothing, that house is not my family, but when I see the house, I think of growing up there. And that's kind of the idea. It's, of course, a, a, simp, a real um, obvious sort of connection there. And that's, that's sort of what's happening here is you go from talking from a household of God, God to a house of God. So the newly formed family of God made of both Jews and Gentiles together, they live in a house, you could say, that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the church as a newly created group, family, unit, has as its foundation, we'll say the first missionaries and preachers. That's what the apostles and the prophets were. They were the first missionaries and preachers. What is an apostle? An apostle literally means, in Greek, a sent one. And in fact, the closest English word would be missionary, someone who is sent for some purpose, particularly um, someone that is sent by a church to do some kind of church purpose, accomplish some kind of purpose for the church. So actually, the apostle really, there's no, the word missionary is not in the Bible at all, but apostle comes very close to that meaning. Uh, now, there's essentially, uh, I would say, three different groups that are called apostles in the New Testament. It's not an Old Testament word. It's a New Testament word. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, um, you don't have to turn to all these, but if you want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm on point here, you can write them down. Acts 1, 22. Remember the uh, 11 disciples, 11 because Judas Iscariot had killed himself. The 11 disciples wanted to replace Judas with another person to make it 12 again. And so um, they uh, identified a gentleman, um, or they were going to identify some gentlemen to, to be candidates for apostleship. And uh, this is what they said concerning that. So we'll start in verse 21, actually, Acts 20, uh, 1, 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So you get the idea that the apostles meant the 11 original disciples plus Matthias, and it was required to be a witness of Jesus' life and the resurrection. And so they put forth um, uh, two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, Verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So that group of 12 apostles, that's one, one group that is labeled an apostle. Well, Paul also, even though he's not part of that 12, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? By this, of course, Paul is including himself in a special group of what you might call apostles. It sounds like he is adding himself to the 12 original disciples, or 11 original plus Matthias, and now himself. And so you, some might consider that this is like an, another definition 
of, of apostle that applies specifically to Paul. And then you have a third kind of apostle, and it's uh, in reference to men and, uh, uh, who were about the ministry of the church. And you see examples of this in Acts 13.2, where Barnabas, Paul's friend, is called an apostle. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, um, set apart for me Bar- Barnabas, I'm sorry, yeah, this is what I said, yeah, Barnabas, and Saul for the work which I have called them. And uh, later, I, maybe I missed the passage here, um, he is considered uh, an apostle. But so are other people. Um, Romans 16, 7, and this isn't made super clear because they choose to make a translation um, call here, maybe to be less confusing. In Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I'm sorry, it wasn't, the ESV gets that right. Some other um, translations will use messenger instead of apostles. So it sounds like this group is not uh, necessarily just the 12 original apostles, but uh, a larger group. You have other passages um, like Timothy and Titus are considered apostles as well. So this seems to be a more broad definition of apostle, that it's someone who's been sent again by a church to accomplish some mission for the church. All that to say, um, there's an archetype, you could say, set by the um, apostles of someone who is on the gospel mission to plant churches. You remember, Jesus told Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And if Jesus is meaning Peter, that was a reference to the work Peter would invest his life in after Jesus ascends to heaven. This is the work that he did and would end up dying for is the building up of churches. The prophets, now, um, this I don't think includes the Old Testament prophets in this context because we're writing about the church. We're writing about what is the church, um, what has the church been built on, and the church was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. There's actually not many places where you could go and think, oh yeah, that's a reference to the church. So it seems unlikely that this is talking um, necessarily about the Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets, Christians who were given the gift of prophecy in the early church, the purpose of which was to edify and strengthen believers. You can go to um, 1 Corinthians 14.3. Yeah, we'll just do that one. I have a lot of cross-references for these because I know that, um, I'll talk about it in a second, that the people uh, can think that prophets and apostles still exist today. But um, we'll just, for now, sake of time, 1 Corinthians 14.3. Paul says regarding prophets and prophecy, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Um, by the way, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So this seems to be uh, a gift that was given by God to the early church for the building up of these newborn baby churches. Paul will talk later in Ephesians 4 as well about apostles and prophets being a gift for the church. Um, that You could think of it this way. The apostles would go and start these churches, plant these churches, and then those with the gift of prophecy would then um, be, be found, and they would build up the churches because they don't have mature believers. They don't have uh, even the whole word of God. So you did need to rely on the special group of people called apostles and prophets for the work um, that was necessary at the building of the foundation of the early church. Now, one reason then that we here at ICC don't believe that the gift of apostles and prophets exists today is for the same reason that a house doesn't need two, three, four, five, six foundations. How many foundations does a house have? One. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they get cracks in them and sometimes you gotta fix them, but a house only has one foundation. And if you say, oh, but yeah, if the, if the foundation gets cracks in it, then don't you need, you know, apostles and prophets now 
to fix that? Well, are you saying that the foundation that the prophets and the apostles built was faulty and it broke and it needs fixing? Well, I think that's a whole other can of worms. That's a very dangerous thought to think that we need modern apostles and prophets now to fix something that, that either they let, you know, they did not build correctly at first or has gotten broken over time. Well, there's going to be a problem there because, as we'll talk about in a second, Jesus is the cornerstone of this, and it implies that there's nothing wrong with this foundation. So, why did those gifts then seem to fade away? Gifts of apostle, gifts of uh, prophet? Well, because the New Testament was being completed. So as the New Testament was being completed, I think the gifts of apostles and prophets faded out. You can sort of see that in church history. Once the New Testament was done, there was now a standard that could be preached and brought, a complete sufficient word that could be used to build up the people of God, that now you needed teachers, pastors, elders, overseers, shepherds to bring forth, not to prophesy, but to simply explain all that God has delivered. Um, likewise, apostles, they gave way to mature believers who, continue, who could continue the work of spreading the gospel while being supported by well-established and healthy churches. You don't need these special apostles because now you have, hopefully, mature churches that are able to send people out and have trained them themselves. So here at ICC, if you have any question about that, we don't believe in the gift of prophecy today or the gift of apostle. I think they're related, and so you can't have one without the other. Um, if you want to talk more about, about that, because there's a lot of churches right now with people that claim to be apostles and prophets, talk more about it later. But I think here, at least, we're getting an idea of, well, what, what are they for? They don't just exist to exist, and they're not just super Christians with superpowers or something, super spiritual powers. They were there for a reason. Well, we see that right here. We don't need to lay a foundation again. A church that stands on the work of the apostles and prophets, their testimony and their faith, which is recorded here in this book, that's all we need. That's all we need to be faithful is this. And for mature believers to continue to make disciples. So more important, though, than that foundation is the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. Again, Christ is not uh, a last name, which here is being presented first. No, Christ is a title. It's a title of his divine authority and purpose. Paul probably had in mind Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. A cornerstone is the first stone that is laid on a building project. And it's the stone that every other stone will be measured against. So a cornerstone has to be perfect in all of its angles and geometry. Every angle must be perfect. Where it is laid must be perfect. And if every stone laid against it is truly square to it, the next stone will be square, and the next stone, and the next stone, until it's complete. And when it is complete, then um, you will have a perfectly square, and actually the temple building itself was a relatively square building. It would stand. Jesus, being the cornerstone, means that every stone, that is, that is every person, must be measured and matched against him, because Paul, again, just shifts the analogy to we are the thing that is building up this, this structure. We are the stones in this temple that is being joined together, or another way to put that is fitted together. Now, it's interesting. They didn't use mortar. If you use mortar in building stuff, you can get away with your bricks not being exactly the same size or being a little bit chipped. Um, because the mortar kind of just fills in the gaps, right? So it'll cover a lot of sins in terms of your building project. So mortar, um, you know, if you have mortar, then you can not necessarily have perfect bricks, right? But these, uh, this temple was built with stones, uh, that, what they call like dry building, no mortar. It was just the stones stacked 
one on top of the other. And um, you can even now see some places, as an example, where the stones were, if they haven't eroded a lot, you can't hardly fit a piece of paper in between these stones because they're so finely fit together. In fact, Herod's temple had some real feats of engineering and construction. Um, Again, they didn't have all the technology that we did or that we do now. Um, Yet those engineers, they cut huge stones, 160,000 pounds, one of these stones that they found. And somehow they got this 160,000 pound stone. Not only did they cut it very precisely, but they laid it down 100 feet in the air, right? Exactly where it needed to be. Very precise. So the stone not only has to be cut perfectly, it has to be laid perfectly, intentionally. And maybe that's what Paul had in mind as he wrote this, except that the structure being built, of course, is not, the, not a physical house, but it's a spiritual one. And Jesus is the perfect cornerstone for this building because he is the perfect man and God in one. So he is the one that stands fixed for this foundation to be built. He is the standard by which every person in every church must be measured against and must be built upon lest it be askew, lest it be in risk of falling. Because if you start, like a lot of things, if you start misaligning the one stone, then the next stone will be a little bit more misaligned and so on until you have a, a structure that it's not standing at all. Now, what's, again, very interesting Paul mixes another sort of analogy or a word that kind of mixes analogy because he he says that this structure being joined together, and that's just the process of fitting these stones on top of each other, it grows into a holy temple and the Lord. The word grows is like a biological process. You think of um, bacteria in a little Petri dish and how it just seems to spread so quickly. It's an organic process. It's something that a living does. In other words, this is not an engineering project. You're not an engineering uh, project. You're not just a a stone, a nameless stone like any other. God is bringing actively people together now intentionally, individuals, human beings who are alive from every part of the world, choosing them, fitting them, placing them very carefully where he wants them to belong in his plan and purpose as part of a family and people of God, and it's something that is, is active and living. It's, it's a beautiful thing that you can imagine, like a really nice building uh, being, uh, being put together. But the true architects, they're not just making buildings, they're making art. And if you talk to like, you know, an architect, it's, it's, they're always looking for both the form and and the function of it. And you could sort of see it that way, that, that, that what we're being built into, it's just not like you're interchangeable with another stone. It's not that God is just picking up uh, things and kind of, you know, well, that's good enough. The idea is a very deliberate, personal, living process that is not complete even yet. The word for temple here, and holy temple, it's the word uh, naos, uh, N-A-O-S, uh, if you're writing that down in English, N-A-O-S. And this doesn't refer just to the whole temple compound. There's actually hieros, which would be the whole temple compound. Um, this word refers specifically to the actual building. And actually not just the actual building, but even the Holy of Holies, the place where actually God dwelled, and the high priest would go in once a year to offer the sacrifice. Where that worship occurred in the presence of God, that is what we mean by this, this word. It's not just the whole kind of zone there, um, the whole area, but it is the very place where God is to meet with. Humans, believers, are now, as a group, becoming the place where God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 
do you not know that you, this is plural, you plural, so not just you individual, but you as a group, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. How do you destroy a temple that's made of people? I mean, I know how you would destroy a building, but how do you destroy a temple that's made up of people? Well, in the context, in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about division. Division is what destroys God's holy temple. Don't be a divisive person, Paul is telling them, because it is as if you were the Romans or the Babylonians trying to tear apart the temple of God. It's an unholy, wicked thing to do. Division is actually one of those things that, that um, Paul uh, makes great pains to denounce as an evil and wicked thing. That's how you tear down the temple of God now. It's not hammers. It's not bombs. It's not, um, it's not soldiers. It's not fire. It's divisiveness. But notice that Paul has a very clear idea that we are all a place where God dwells. Not only that, we read it this morning, John 14, 23, where Jesus is saying to his disciples that the Father and the Son will dwell in you. And of course, he talks then about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And you see it here in 1 Corinthians also, that the Spirit um, dwells in you. And we see that in Ephesians 2, that you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, again, like we said last week, very casual Trinitarian message that the Trinity dwells amongst the people of God. Dwells in you individually too. That's not Paul's point. Of course, you, uh, you know 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, but the your body is the temple of God. You individually are a place where God dwells as well. That's a little bit different thought, um, so we won't go and get into it today, but understand that we as a church in the body of Christ, our place where the Trinitarian God dwells among us. And Paul just kind of takes that as a, as a casual thing. The people of God from every nation and tribe and tongue are becoming this beautiful, glorious dwelling place for God where the Holy Spirit himself dwells and lives. And in a way, he's the one that makes us fitted to be a part of this building. God wants a suitable place to dwell in that is free from division, from walls of, <clears throat> dividing walls of hostility. This is the one place where people can come and hear one uniform, uniting message that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God, and Christ is eternal life through faith in him and the forgiveness of our sins. That we are offering that equally to everyone because everyone needs to hear it. And I am not here to say that you or I am a worse sinner or a better sinner. What a silly discussion to have. We're all sinners and we all need to believe in Jesus. We all need the gospel. One application that I also want to make is I like this building a lot. <clears throat> I do. <clears throat> I don't know if the inspectors would like it if they came through, but I like it. You know, are there some things that I would like to change? Sure. You know, are, are there things that could be improved? Should we get on the main sewer line? Probably. Um, you know, could we update, you know, this and that? Fine. But I really want to emphasize that this building is not the church. <laughs> If the only thing that binds us together this morning is the fact that we come at a common time, that we appreciate the convenient location right here off of the freeway, that we seem to share similar tastes and interests, that does not make us the kind of building that Paul describes here. This structure does not make anything happen spiritually. It's just wood and stone. Again, don't get me wrong. I love it. I, I would not want to <clears throat> see anything happen to the, the structure or the building of it. But if in your mind, just like I tend to think of 
you know, where I grew up in my family and home, I think of my house. If I think of church and I just think of this building and not the people in it, then maybe we have missed the mark a little bit. If we wouldn't uh, exist as Irvine Community Church unless we had this exact housing with these dimensions in it, then we have failed to understand Paul's word about being a people, a household of God that's brought together, been brought together by the message of peace, the gospel, and are knitted together in love and bonded together, not because we happen to occupy the same campus grounds and we all park. I mean, there's already enough division. We've got gravel lot parking people and asphalt parking people. But I mean, if, like, if, if, if that is the only thing that's holding us together, is that we're just, our bodies are here one day a week, two days a week, we're not really truly being the church. We're falling short of being the place, kind of place where the spirit dwells. And so let me just encourage all of you, uh, again, to, to make those relationships with others here, to talk about the things of God with each other, to talk about the message and what's going on in your life, to pray for each other and to grow together, to, to plan and create events that will include people from this church and then to go out and to share the gospel with your neighbors and friends who need to hear about this peace they can have with God, no matter how bad a sinner they are. These are the things that Paul wants to knit our hearts together with. These are the things that make a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit is when the things of God are what knits us together. That's something to think about and pray about. If you're not a Christian, um, I didn't want to get into all the statistics today, but the statistics are staggering about how lonely and depressed and separated folks are right now, disjointed and dispirited and distant from each other. This is, should be a place where people can come together. It didn't work with the temple that Solomon built. It almost did. It almost was that kind of place. But it fell short because it was built by human hands. Let us be the kind of temple built by God's hands where people can see the kind of love that we have for each other and know that there is a God in heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Uh, that's the best thing to pray right now. It's just my eternal gratefulness to have found this church as a young man and to have grown up here and to have been surrounded by so many saints who have loved me and put up with me, been patient with me, guided me and led me. And now to find my place, my own situation and place here is trying to likewise lead. It's, it's overwhelming, and I, I don't doubt that it's not overwhelming for everyone in here to think about being a part of something so good and glorious. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to be the, the stone that's not quite fitting and we can be so self-conscious, but help everyone here to know that if they put faith in Jesus, that I am thankful for them, I love them, but more importantly, you are the one that loves them and are fitting them together. You've deliberately placed each stone here for reason and purpose. And help us to know that purpose and, and find that opportunity to serve you and love you here, Lord, at this church, so that the world might know that there's a God who has loved them, who has offered forgiveness of sins through his son. That's what we're about. That's what the apostles and the prophets were about. Help us to continue to build on that foundation too. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.